So hi, everyone. Welcome to the Royal Podcast of Oz. Today I'm talking with our friend Tim Tucker. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm doing fine. Okay. Um, Tim is an Oz fan who lives out in Alabama. So um, what do you do when you're not uh, at the Emerald City or in the TARDIS? Uh, I work for the uh, for the Department of the Army. Oh. Uh, uh, U.S. Army a- Avi- Aviation and Missile Command, uh, Aviation Engineering Directorate. Now, uh, how exactly did you get interested in Oz? Most people my age, uh, that would have been through the MGM movie. Uh, I can't remember the first time I saw the movie, but I know when I was in fifth grade that after I saw the movie, I found a copy, a paperback of The Wizard of Oz at school. I made an attempt to read it at that time, but unfortunately it was a copy without illustrations, which, um, which loses something, as you, you might imagine. Uh, but luckily the, uh, the main library at, the, at my school had a white edition Brian Lee copy of The Wizard of Oz with the Denzel illustrations, and that I was able to finish. And then I started trying to find other Oz books in town, and I managed to find uh, Land of Oz, Dorothy and the Wizard, uh, and oddly enough, uh, The Master Key, Sky Island, and Merry-Go-Round in Oz. Oh. So you got quite a bit of accomplishment done there. Yeah, uh, but luckily one of the libraries had a, a copy of uh, The Annotated Wizard by uh, Michael Patrick Hearn. And that kind of filled in some of the gaps of what I didn't have available to me. But uh, yeah, I, I did kind of run the well dry pretty quickly. Uh, and uh, I, I really didn't get back into Oz until uh, Del Rey started publishing the uh, the Thompson Oz books and paperback uh, in 1985 after uh, Return to Oz came out. And by that time I was in college. Uh, so I was able to uh, get both uh, a good number of the Thompsons and paperbacks before they went out of print and all the uh, all the uh, bomb uh Oz books and paperback uh, from Del Rey. Okay. And, uh, and quite a few of uh, the Dover paperbacks as well, about the same time. And uh, it, was, uh, it was also when I was in college that I joined the, uh, the International Wizard of Oz Club for the first time. You saw Turned Eyes when it came out in the theaters, or did you end up bringing it for home video? Uh, I saw it on television. Okay. Uh, I, I, I didn't get to see it in the movie theaters. I'm not even sure how long it ran in the movie theaters, to be honest. So, uh, what do you think of that film when you first saw it? They got a lot of things right, uh, but the uh, the tone of the movie was uh, was was wrong. Uh, it, it it was much. Uh, it's 
been criticized as being much too dark, and I think that's uh, uh, that's legitimate uh, le- legitimate criticism of it. Uh, unfortunately, that's probably the uh, the last time we're probably going to get anything close to what uh, Bomb actually wrote put on screen. I first met you at uh, the Winky Convention in 2010, and we've both been attending uh, the past four months. Uh, when do you, when do you actually start going to the conventions around the U.S.? Uh, my first convention was uh, 1992 Cosmopolitan in Chicago. Uh, I am glad that I did go to that convention that year because uh, I, I met quite a number of people who uh, who died. Uh, not long after that, so uh, I would have never been able to uh, to, uh, to meet them if I hadn't done that. Uh, at the convention, uh, Rob Roy McVeigh was there. I think he he died a few months after that. And in retrospect, I could tell that uh, he was not a well man at that time, uh, which probably explains uh, why they gave him the Alfred Bomb Award that year. Uh, quite, a, quite a moving thing to see him receive that. Mm. Uh, uh, also at that convention was uh, Bill Eubanks, and uh, he did one of his uh, puppet shows based on Ruth uh, uh, Tommy Thompson's A Day in Oz. Uh, and he had a lovely set of uh, Oz puppets. And uh, he died within the next year after that convention, too. And uh, I've always wondered where those puppets went to after that. It'd be a shame if, uh, if they were lost or something. But uh, I've never heard anybody mention, that, mention them ever since. I think I've seen them on sale. On, I think they went on eBay, and then I think a cl- uh, Fred Trust bought them, actually, to the book dealer. Uh, I haven't heard from them in a while, though. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, Seward Halster was at that convention as well. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't have very many interactions with you, but uh, I did get the impression that uh, that he came across as the uh, the college professor that he was. Quite personal, actually. Uh, later, uh, later found out that. Uh, he actually was well-known in his own academic field, which uh, it's always strange to hear about somebody you know from Oz uh, being recognized for something entirely different than how you know them. Uh, but the uh, but the biggest celebrity that I met that year was Elvis uh, Jarvis Uh She was the, uh, the major guest of the convention that year. And... Uh, Anybody I've ever met can be described as a lady. She was. She was the, one of the most charming, funny people that I've ever met. And, and I think anybody who's ever met her would uh, would agree with me of that description of her. Uh, and, and, but unfortunately, after that convention in 92, uh, I got laid off my first job and went back to graduate school. 
and I wasn't able to afford to go to another mass convention until the, the Centennial Convention in um, in Bloomington in 2000. And that's one of the few mass conventions I've ever driven to in my life. In fact, uh, most of the others I've gone to, I've had to fly. And uh, I think uh, with one or two exceptions, I've gone to an OS convention every year since 2000. There's something that I know that um, you uh, you and I and a few other OS fans have in common, where we're also fans of Doctor Who. And I thought, you know, not too long ago, I'm like, so wait a minute, Doctor Who is like normally about, you know, you have the companions, who, who how I wind up meeting the dogs when they have all these sometimes often just plain insane adventures, and then you have the Oz books, which start off as stories about uh, someone being taken from the uh, from the ordinary everyday world and thrust into this uh, fantasy adventure. Uh, I wonder if there's like a little connection there that we kind of pick up on. I think there's something about the uh, about the construction of both, the, the, both that their similarities would appeal to the same type of person. Uh, the other coincidental thing is there is uh, I discovered Doctor Who about the same time I started getting back into Oz in 1985. So uh, I was exploring both of those things concurrently when uh, when I was uh, uh, going through college. So the, the two of them are kind of very closely uh, aligned in my mind because of that. Right. And I know you go to a number of those conventions as well. Uh, it, it, it's odd when you meet some people through one fandom and find out they're fans of uh, uh, fans of Oz as well. Uh, the most prominent person I know of in Doctor Who that is a Oz fan is Gary Russell, uh, who was. Uh, uh, Used to edit Doctor Who magazine, written several Doctor Who novels. Uh, was script editor on the show at uh, at one point in the past few years. He, he he's an Oz book fan, uh, not not an MGM fan, which kind of surprised me because uh, we both know how little distribution the Oz books actually got in the United Kingdom. So. Uh, it's one of those nice, odd little coincidences that uh, you run across in life. Okay. Do you have any odd stories you might like to share about some of your Oz experiences, maybe at conventions, or maybe if you wind up running, wound up playing to someone who was also an Oz fan? Well, well the, uh, the first story that comes to mind is uh, when I met uh, Eloise. I had an interesting story to tell her uh, because when I read Mary Graham for the first time, because I hadn't read any of the books after Dorothy and the Wizards and Oz, I was quite confused while reading Mary Graham, and I didn't I didn't know what to think of uh, the book, and to be honest, I, I didn't think it was very good by the time I finished it, because I was reading the thing completely out of context. Uh, but when I reread it after uh, 
I realized just how good of an aspect it was. And, uh, and when I told Eloise that story, she just had a good laugh out of it because, and told me that uh, those, uh, those weren't... Uh, Because I know that um, you know he died in the early 2000s. Yes, uh, he actually died the weekend of uh, Osmopolitan Convention. All right. Hey, I remember reading about that. Peter Hamp announced it at uh, the Saturday night dinner that uh, that Fred had died. Uh, I'm thinking that might have been 2000. Uh, that was uh, in the convention that uh, Derek Fabi uh, chaired, if I'm remembering that correctly. You probably haven't met Derek, uh, uh, Dexter, Dexter, Dexter Fabi. No, I haven't met him. Um. Uh, I, 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 I really think he's come out to, uh, to Winkies once, and that was during the time that he was living in... Uh, in San Francisco. Uh, but, uh, he's a long-time uh, resident of Chicago. It, 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 uh, the aspect of Fred's death did kind of put a, uh, a, uh, a, a damper on the convention, though given that Fred's health had been declining for several years at that point, it wasn't unexpected. People know it was coming, but still is that all the same? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember... Uh, I was I was surprised to see Fred wheelchair bound at the uh, at the Centennial Convention. I was it was kind of sad to see how much he had deteriorated in the eight years uh, since I'd last seen him. So um, his his health had been in uh, slow decline for uh, for many years. Now, you mentioned that you picked up uh, some paperback editions of the Oz books, but I know that you've been uh, collecting some more valuable editions and some other Oz and Oz-related books as well. Yes. Seen you at the Winky Auctions picking up books, and one time you wound up outbidding me on 
uh, on a book I was wanting to get, but I got later on the online, so we're good. <laughs> Surprise! I got from I believe it was Irene Fisher years and years ago. Was it's always the book that you don't buy that you regret, and um, and, and that turns out to be true uh, because. There was there was there was one book at the auction at my first convention that I should have bought at the time, and I've always regretted that I didn't. It was a pristine copy of Lucky Bucky and Oz in Best Oh my goodness! First edition. Yeah. yeah. What were you thinking? And, uh, I, I I wasn't collecting that sort of stuff at the time. I was just trying to get copies to read. So I, I, I bought a, uh, a I bought a later edition of the book instead uh, for uh, for cheap and and read it that way. Uh, but uh, but the other thing in the auction that I wanted I did get was uh, my own personal copy of the first edition of uh, Annotated Wizard, which is something that I really did want. So. But and, but the sad thing is, I've never seen another copy of Lucky Bucky First Edition Dust Jacket ever since, and I've been looking for one. So the thing is, I've got uh, I've got First Editions of all the uh, all the other Neil books now, but uh, I I, uh, I just keep looking for that uh, for that elusive Lucky Bucky. Okay, maybe someday. Maybe someday. And I've, I've got plenty of other nice first editions of other Oz books. Uh, not not many in uh, not many in Dust Jacket. Uh, but, That's uh, the downside to collecting Oz books is that the uh, fact is that they were children's books, and well, I know uh, from memories from personal experience that when a kid gets a, a book with a dust jacket, sooner or later that thing is history. Yeah. Uh, but I do remember a few years ago, uh, Michael Riley took me off to a dealer in Atlanta who had uh, a set of late 30s editions of, of Oz books in in pristine dust jackets. Um, so I picked up a few of those. They're not first editions. They don't have color plates, but they do have perfect dust jackets, which is the expense of getting that because how, how often are you going to find those? <laughs> And they weren't cheap, let me tell you. The guy knew what he had. The experienced dealer will cost you more, but what you do get is worth it, so... Yeah, I, I, I keep hoping what they're saying about that, uh, with estate sales and all that, all these Oz collections are coming back onto the market and driving prices down. So this may be the best time for a young collector to uh, to build up a nice... Uh, Representative set of, uh, of early Oz editions, yeah. pro- probably a lot easier than it was when uh, well, when I was uh, getting serious about collecting. Oh yeah, uh, it seems like it wasn't too long ago when it was pretty hard to find any Oz books. Now you're finding vintage uh, copies of Oz books for not really cheap, but still pretty affordable. Yeah. Is it just like some 
type of thing with Oz collectors where they might start out buying and copies, thinking, oh, I'll just buy these to read, and then eventually they really start thinking, well, it'd be nicer if I had an actual Riley and Lee copy, or maybe Riley and Britain. <laughs> eventually, yeah, I, I, you're like, first edition, color plates. Um, I, I do believe there is a constant process, process of wanting to upgrade what you already yeah. have. Because I know I've got duplicates in my collection that uh, that I pro- that probably probably didn't. Uh, I got a better copy of something uh, than what I initially had. Uh, to be honest, I need to probably do a call of my collection and uh, uh, break some stuff into an option one of these days. They're always you kind of get the idea in your mind of you've been focusing on one part of collecting and then you realize that there's some other stuff out there that you might want to get as well. Now, just for the pure nostalgia factor, I'd like to get a, uh, a set of uh, white edition Oz books uh, because you know, that, that would have, those were the ones that to the, uh, to the land of Oz to begin with. And after uh, David Maxine did that wonderful series of uh, pointing out the uh, unique properties of uh, of the uh, of the white edition Oz books, that kind of got me more interested in tracking in tracking those down. And those those were surprisingly not that easy to find either. We think something is, is that was published that uh, that recently. There would be more of them about, yeah. uh, or, or, or more, I would say, uh, the ones that I found have not been in the uh, well. They've been in well loved condition. At the moment, what do you think are probably some of the crown jewels of your collection? If you had to select a couple or so. Well, you well you saw one of them last year. I mean, uh, at the at Winkies this year. Uh, the uh, uh, my first edition of uh, Patrick Girl. Yeah. I've got a nice first of Scarecrow and Glinda. I think I've got a few first of uh, Captain books, and I've I've got a immaculate copy of uh, Longfellow's Evangeline, uh, illustrated by John Arneal. Okay. Which was an interesting discovery, to be honest, because uh, I found it on eBay in um, uh, from a seller who was liquidating a uh, an old dry goods store in the Midwest, and uh, the reason the book was in such fine condition is that it was still in the gift box that uh, Riley and Lee shipped them out in. So it, it was uh, the box was uh, was falling falling apart, but the uh, but it protected the book and the book was wrapped in tissue paper inside the box, so uh, the book looks brand new. Wow! So do you have it like behind glass and a protective case and everything? Well, it, it, well, it's wrapped in mylar. Okay. Right now. I've actually got a uh, a glass printed bookcase uh, that I've uh, 
that I've bought that I need to assemble to put some of this stuff in. I just haven't got around to uh, to doing that yet. Something to something to put the, uh, the most valuable things that I own into for uh, for extra protection. As a matter of fact, uh, my collection is uh, broad enough that uh, during the uh, 150th anniversary of Bob's birth, I was able to arrange with the local public library to put up a display of, uh, of some of the books that I had uh, in the library for a month. To uh, to celebrate uh, Bomb's birth in uh, May of uh, 2006. I mean, yeah, I know. I mean, my dad has um, sometimes contributed Sherlock Holmes or a Christmas Carol themed displays to our local library. So I've got some. I got some first edition Aunt Jane Niece's books. Uh, you got the. Nice first edition of Angelina's Nieces with all the illustrations in it that they like use in the first edition, then never again. <laughs> um, well, I, I don't have very many in first. It's kind of a mixed collection. Yeah. But I've got one Boy's Fortune Hunter books, not in the best condition, but it's uh, but it's not bad. The, the collection is always an ongoing project, like uh, like any collection is. <laughs> So, yeah, you just keep an eye out for what you're looking for and sometimes maybe even what you're not looking for and you come up with something. Yeah, th- th- those are always the most, uh, the most dreadful things to find is the, is the unexpected. That's, that's what makes it all worthwhile to find something that you're looking for in a place you don't expect it to be. Yeah. Hmm, I probably should try hitting up some of these extra used bookstores around town. <laughs> I wish we had better used bookstores around here, but uh, yeah. it is what it is. It's not exactly that sort of town. There's not exactly a huge amount uh, around here either, so... Yeah. This year, the movie Eyes of Great and Powerful came out, and I know that And when we were at Winkies, you know, of course, people wound up discussing it over and over, and you had a little interesting criticism about how they depicted um, Glenda and the... Two wicked sisters in the film. The Miss Prissy criticism. It seems like the uh, the screenwriters uh, wrote uh, the witches like uh, like the uh, the chicken Miss Prissy from the Foghorn Leghorn cartoon. It's like uh, their reaction to uh, the wizard showing up was heavens to Betsy, a man, <laughs> and uh, and they were just kind of running around. Uh, uh, panting all the time and, and uh, with heaving breaths about the possibility of a, a real honest goodness man within their reach, which which is so antithetical to Bond's version of Oz, it just kind of uh, kept pulling me out of the mood. It brought in that uh, uh, that type of romance that. Uh, he specifically, specifically was trying to keep out of his fairy tales, and, and to be honest, I think it uh, uh, made the movie a lot cruder than it needed to be for a uh, for a children's film. I think one of the most appealing things about Bombs Oz is that you know, 
you know, people there are like, okay, so you're like this, and that's not really an issue. It's like no one blinks twice to think that uh, animals talking to him or that uh, then he had Osway and Powerful, which, you know, it's like the more you look at it, the more you're like, oh, they just completely tailored this to try to be like almost every other fantasy movie they've made in the past 10 years. Yeah, it, it's a sign of the, uh, the, the, uh, the low expectations of the Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah. It, it, it is a movie pitched to the lowest common denominator. And admittedly, it worked. It was a much more successful film than Return to Oz was. Eventually, we will, uh, I suspect that we will see the sequel to it. But uh, the problem is if you dumb down a film script to appeal to uh, teenagers out for a good time on a, on a, on a Friday night, I can't see Oz Green Powerful becoming a cult film like uh, Turned Oz has. And it's probably not going to become a major fantasy film like the MGM film. Uh, well, that's that's the problem with uh, with uh, doing a uh, any sort of Oz film. It's kind of like trying to do a uh, a Civil War drama along the lines of uh, A Gone with the Wind. I mean, you're, all, you're always going to pale in comparison with, uh, with, with perfection. Both, both Gone with the Wind and Wisp of Oz got their subjects right the first time. And uh, there is very little need to, to go revisit uh, either one of those again. Unfortunately, that's never stopped Hollywood before. Well, the thing about The Wizard of Oz is that it's such a interesting story that, you know, every now and then someone wants to do a new interpretation of it. Well, even, even so, the uh, even the, re, the reinterpretations seem to be uh, repetitive in their ideas as well. If I had a dime for every time I've heard about a uh, dark reinterpretation, a reinterpretation of Oz, I'd be a rich man. Right? Uh, that, that seems to be the, the only thing that uh, that people could think of doing with material, uh, which, which almost is uh, uh, almost is uh, child of an approach is uh, what Disney did with uh, great powerful. It's like the film industry was like ready to do to do Oz right once, and they came out with the MGM film, and thank goodness they did it. Hit then because I don't think that I don't really think that they could have made it at any other time in history. You know, not just uh, simply the fact that they had that they could get the cast in, but you know, the way they made it. I don't think they could have made it in say the 50s or the 60s, and you know, some by some miracle, even if they had still had the same cast, it would not have been the same film. Well, first of all, they made it later on, and uh, Judy Garland starred in it. I I think uh, what helped the 1939 movie work as well as it did. It was of its time, but timeless as well. And it, it came out of a lot of different traditions that were going on at the time. It, uh, it, it, it is a very Broadway type of movie. And actually quite groundbreaking in its way, because uh, Broadway didn't do anything like that until a few years later. Uh, it is very difficult to do that 
after World War II because uh, that, that was the era of uh, science fiction as opposed to fantasy. The environment would have been right for uh, for a, a big fantasy film like that. As a matter of fact, we didn't get any sort of fantasy films like that until uh, Sinbad movies in the uh, in the late 50s. And those for certain were musicals. But uh, you, you can never understand why some films are all the stars align properly and you get something that's unreproducible. I think that's probably the beauty of the, uh, of the, uh, the studio system at the time, is that uh, you could have that many times people in one place at one time and be able to create something as that, that artificial and, uh, and make it work. And, uh, and people would suspend their disbelief long enough uh, to accept it. Uh, you know, and, uh, nowadays, you couldn't make a movie with, uh, with that many uh, matte paintings and backdrops and uh, people accept as uh, as something that's real. Uh, nowadays, we have a different expectation of films. I mean, Hans uh, Grand Profil was a primarily a green screen film. It was mostly... Uh, most of the pieces uh, were uh, CGI in, in, instead of being uh, designed as uh, practical sets, which admittedly you can get something that can look like something completely unrealistic that way, but uh, you can never forget that it is as artificial as uh, those uh, matte paintings in the old movies. It's just people accept it in a way that they won't accept the old technology anymore. Do you have any particular favorite Oz films? Well, there is Return to Oz, of course. I still think that's a, a, a very underrated film, but even despite its flaws. I do have a fondness for Journey Back to Oz, the Filmation cartoon, because I remember seeing that on television when I was a child. In, enjoyed that even even as flawed as well. And I do have a soft spot for the uh, the 1910 Sonic uh, Wizard of Oz. That got me to write a uh, review uh, for its uh, DVD release for the uh, for the Bomb Bugle. Oh yeah, you were the guy who compared the two different versions on the Warner Brothers set and the one that the Library of Congress put out. Yeah, I have to admit I've never seen the 1925 Wizard. You haven't seen it. No, I've been kind of avoiding. Okay, it's like, or, or, or at least avoiding it until I've seen enough Larry Seaman comedies to uh, uh, to kind of understand well what type of comedian he was. Have you found any? Have you found any of them? Oh yes, uh, they included some on a uh, Oliver Hardy collection a few years ago. Sounds like in the time he actually was. I won't spoil it, but you look at it and it's like. Okay, it actually works. The thing is, the problem is it's called The Wizard of Oz, and it's like, this has, really has nothing to do with The Wizard of Oz, I know. Well, well, the thing is, like, he was making it like the films that he's always made. It was just that uh, he threw a, a veneer of Oz on top of it, and that's what made it not work. You know, even before the MGM film, there was the original Broadway musical that still had people 
but still had that number of fans throughout all those years. I think that's what I to go see uh, when that company did a production of the, the 1902 Wizard. I can't remember exactly who did that. I'm kind of thinking the Ohio Night Opera or somebody like that. But, uh, but I think it was a admirable effort to try to uh, put something that antique back on stage again. Uh, because because it, it it doesn't behave like what we expect musical theater to behave anymore. Uh, but I'm sure David Maxine can go into depth on, uh, on on that sort of subject. I think he could do that at the drop of a hat, to be honest. Quite likely. I mean, he has been researching it for quite some time. Uh, I do remember him giving a... Uh, an illustrated talk about the first act of uh, the 1902 Wizard at Centennial uh, back in 2000. And uh, you, you can kind of see how it would work on stage. I mean, it, it is a funny script. It's episodic, but it is funny. Yeah. Uh, probably verging on to corny at this point, but you could still, uh, but you could still get laughs out of it, out of the material. So, I mean, it's kind of helping that the video that, uh, that uh, production services one of these days, because I'd really like to see it. Do you have a particular favorite Oz character? Yes, Jack Pumpkinhead. Okay. Any particular reason why? Uh, yeah, he just kind of captured my imagination when I first read about him in, uh, in Land of Oz. The thing was kind of like the uh, combination of uh, a solemnity in uh, his tone of voice and the outrageousness of how the, how he looked, and, and just the way that Bob described the character uh, in Land of Oz is always just kind of struck with me. And um, I have to admit that uh, the cover of uh, Jack Jack Pumpkinhead of Oz is, I think, is one of the best in the entire series. There's one of Neil's best dust jacket covers. I mean, it's just a beautiful portrait of Jack Pumpkinhead. Is Jack looking pretty heroic there, actually? Yeah, which uh, it's really hard to do for uh, for a man made of, of uh, sticks and uh, with a pumpkin sit, uh, sitting on top of his head. Mm-hmm. I, I think my second favorite character is uh, Patrick Girl. Uh, there's a character who's just... Uh, Full of life, in more ways than one. Uh, but uh, but I, and I think that's because uh, Patrick Girl is my favorite of, uh, of all the Oz books, except for the ending. Yeah, it does kind of have that ending where it's like, oh yeah, that seems like you had to do. Turns out you didn't have to do that. Yeah, that. Bond was bad about that about in, ending stories in anticlimax. It's it's times like those when I you you, you wish that they had a real editor on staff at Riley and Lee and uh, who who would have told him uh, this isn't working you know you need to try to find something else that would have required them to spend money which uh, I don't think they were ever that uh, that if you wound up in Oz and had down the Albuquerque Road to the Emerald City what would you ask the Wizard for or Oz money either one. <laughs> Probably to go home. <laughs> uh, to be honest, I'm a real homebody. I mean, I like traveling and all that, but I like getting home as as much.
you'd probably be glad for the adventure, but you'd prefer just to get back home. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, uh, I pretty much got about everything that I, I, I want out of life, so just getting back to the real world would be uh, would, would be enough for me. Well, yeah, I think that might be where we want to close this up. So, uh, thank you for well, thank you for talking to me today, uh, Tim. I, I enjoyed doing it. Music is by Kevin McLeod of www.incompetech.com. <laughs>